0: We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. Hey, I want to do this. Just wanna pause and say thank you to our, to our choir and our orchestra, to Ron Bowles, who's leading us today. We praise God for you, thank you so much for guiding us and leading us. Scott, Davidson, wherever you are, thank you. Just praise God for you, each one of you. Um, they not only sing, they mean what they sing. And our leadership always guiding, you know, always guiding us, let's, let's be true to what we say and what we say we believe, let's live it out. And so, wow, so moved by that, that song in particular. So we're, we're so grateful to be back uh, here with you. And uh, I want you to go ahead and grab your Bible. You know where to turn. We're in this Romans road trip you can see there. On a road trip, now, uh, my family, we had the opportunity to get away uh, just a bit, uh, kind of a vacation if you want to end up in Colorado and just say that's vacation enough. I was speaking throughout the week at a Christian family guest ranch. It's called Wind River Ranch outside of Estes Park if you've ever been up in that area. So I didn't drive, I actually put my life in the hands of a pilot um, so I could get back last night and then be here today. But uh, most of the time, when I'm on a road trip, real road trip, Stacy knows this, if I'm honest, you know, I really like to drive. Anybody else, Any, maybe some other men, you like to drive when you're, right? Um, others of you, how many of you like, no, I want somebody else to drive for me? How many of you are there? Yeah, okay, even some of you men, that's good. Um, but I, I like to drive, and I, I thought about this, you know, in part, because I, I, I don't do board well, and so I want to be doing something probably. But I think more, if I'm honest, I want to be in control. That's what it is. I mean, I want to I be the one to, you know guide the car and lead and go to where I want to go and all that good stuff. And if I'm not, I'm looking at the map like, okay, I think we're going the right way and when i we going to get there? And all of that kind of stuff. We've been on this road trip throughout the summer, but you know, we, I think a lot of us, all of us are this way in our own personal lives. Uh, we want to be in control. And, and, and the hard part then is to release control to someone else. Every time you step into a car as a passenger, you're trusting the driver. You're, you're really putting your, your life in the hands of the driver, literally. And um, I don't know if you saw, not too long ago, it came out in the news that Dallas is one of two cities, along with Dubai, I think is the other, that are gonna be experimenting with these Uber drones. Have you seen this? Uber drones, where you're gonna get in a drone and just so you can beat the traffic, go across the city. I mean, how badly do you wanna get to a meeting in Dallas? Um, how badly do you want to get there on time, right? Would you get in a drone taking you to a meeting? Maybe. We'll see how that goes. I won't be the first one to do that. But uh, we place our lives in the hands of others. We did it on about a 14, gosh, coming back 16-hour flight from uh, Nairobi, actually from Qatar to, uh, to Dallas. But you put your life in the hands of another, and we struggle with this, of course, in our own lives. We struggle with it in our religious, in religious lives, if you will. We struggle with this in our salvation, even in our salvation. We want to be in control because if we are in control, then we can keep score, right? If we live religious lives, live good enough, well enough, then I'm a bit in control. I, I, I'm, I'm guiding and leading this thing. And yet Paul throughout Romans has been telling us, in fact, we don't get out of chapter one and he says, no, 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 you've misunderstood. Sin is not bad behavior up against good behavior. So you can have these scales and you can somehow weigh the scales on your good side of behavior. He says, no, no, no. Sin is a condition of the heart. It's not bad or good behavior. And he says, and so we look at that and we go, well, okay, that's bad news. But then he says, but, but here's the thing. Romans 1, 17, really sparked the Reformation and, and is really central to the book. He says, a righteousness has come to us apart from the law, apart from your good works or bad works. A righteousness has come from outside of us. And it's come through Christ and his death on the cross for us, his resurrection. And so now we simply need to trust in him. And so we think, well, that's good news. And so the question arises, but what about the Jews? Because they were the promised people, were they not? And Paul saying, I was a former Jew. And so he has this kind of imaginary um, questioner throughout the book of Romans. Some say it's Paul himself, and clearly it's coming from his mind. But it's kind of an unsaved Jew that's asking all these questions. And today we're going to come to arguably the hardest passage in all of the book of Romans. In fact, some say it's the most difficult passage that Paul writes in all the New Testament. You might know that elsewhere, Peter is the one, the Apostle Peter says, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. I think he's referring to Romans 9. And So we're going to do our best in a short period of time to unpack a real challenging message. We're going to ask the question, who's going on this trip? Because if God is, is sovereign over all things, if he's truly in control of my life, then Do I have free will at all? Who's in? Who's out? We're going to ask these questions. And over the next few weeks, I hope you won't miss, chapter 9 talks about the sovereignty of God. You can see it there. Chapter 10 is the justice of God. We're going to ask that question today. Is he truly just? We, We know he's loving, but is he just? Is he going to do right by me or by others? And then we're going to look at the faithfulness of God. So Romans 9, and we're going to primarily look at verse 6 through 24, but before we get there, I just kind of want to mess with your minds a little bit, and today, if you leave with more questions than you had when you came in, then I may have done my job, Um, because what we're going to do, we're going to land ultimately uh, addressing the the, the fact that God is bigger than we ever thought he was, and this is humbling for us. I hope that you're right-sized before God today, and you leave thinking, I can't figure this out, because God is bigger than you can imagine. So the only response, here's where this sermon goes, all right, spoiler alert, surrender your life to him, because he's bigger than you've ever imagined. You see, every person on the journey with Jesus has been chosen by him to be on the journey. Today, we're going to talk about the doctrine of election. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. And then we read uh, Ephesians 1. Read that this afternoon. The doctrine of election clearly laid out in Ephesians 1, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. He chose you. Now, people in the Capital C Church have wrestled with this for for millennia. Uh, And we have different uh, views on how we see this, you know, foreknowledge or is it predestination, predetermined, which is a biblical word, by the way, predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, you go way back to Deuteronomy 7, as I set this up, this passage up a little bit. And it says, it was not that I chose you, Israel, because you were mighty among the nations, or because you were the biggest one or the greatest one. I chose, he says, I chose you because I loved you. I loved you, so I chose you. And the logic goes like this, which seems illogical to us. I love you because I love you. That's what he says. This is true in your life and mine. This is humbling. We want to be in control. It's why this is going to mess with our minds. God loves us because he loves us. This is what we call unconditional election. And so we see people running to two different camps, and we're going to get into more theology than some of you want to get into today, but we're all theologians. Theology matters. And so we push people, as we do in all, it seems, domains of life these days, where we say there's just binaries. There's those on that side, and there's those on that side. And so I want you to see today that oftentimes we put people, well, you're a Calvinist, or you're an Arminian okay, which means John Calvin, predestination, some of you know this, and then you have um, Jacob Arminius, who challenged the reformers, one of the few, who said, no, 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 there's free will, and he probably went too far. If you go too far, either way, I think you're off track. There aren't two binaries, polarizing groups, though many want to make it out to be that way, and we have all these denominations as a result of some of this, a lot of this, in fact, and so where, where do we land? People ask me, Jeff, are you a Calvinist? My first response is, well, explain that to me. You tell me what a Calvinist is, and I'll I'll, I'll let you know. What is a Calvinist? So we got to get clear about what a Calvinist is or not. And then what I like to say is, I'm I'm not a Calvinist or Arminian. This is where I want us to go today. I don't want you to land as a Calvinist or an Arminian. And by the way, beware, you read Romans 9 by itself, you're a Calvinist. You will come out a Calvinist. You're going to see what I'm saying today. But but where do we land in all this? I say, no, 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 I'm a biblicist. That's what I am. We always ask, what does the Bible say? I'm not following after John Calvin or Jacob Arminius. I'm following after Jesus. What does Jesus say? What does he say about this? I have no problem, friends, with with God's foreknowledge, knowing ahead of time what's going to happen, right? We all believe that, I think. He's God. He's God. And so some would wrestle, then that's predetermined then. I have no problem with God having foreknowledge, even a predetermined will, and us still having free will inside of those boundaries. I mean, think about that. God is so powerful, so omniscient, so all-knowing that he is going to accomplish his plans. And he still gives us choice in the midst of that. That's an all-powerful God. That blows our minds, right? I like uh, what Eugene Peterson said regarding the mysteries of the Bible. He said this, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. And so today I want us to just bow before God that we do not understand, receive and embrace the mysteries of Scripture and of God that we cannot put in a box. Because here's what, you know, think about this. God is... Jesus was fully God, fully man. Do you understand that? God is three in one. Can you explain that? We've tried through the centuries to explain these things. And I believe God has a predetermined will, and yet he allows us to have free will in the midst of that. Can't quite explain all that. But Paul is going to answer some of these questions. And we struggle with this doctrine because it reveals a lack of trust. Let's come humbly before him. And say, you know, I think it is because I want to control my life and even my salvation. And so we question if God's just, if he's loving. So if you read Romans 9 alone, I said, you're going to come out a Calvinist. Now, before you go hyper-Calvinist on me, um, you, you press on and read more. You read into, into chapter 10, where we'll be next week. And look at what it says. This is our memory verse, by the way, as we're memorizing scripture throughout the throughout the summer. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, let's say that without it being on the screen. All right? Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Wait, everyone? Or the elect? what about john three sixteen? Uh, for god so loved the what world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life eternal life the world everyone or the elect These are the things that we wrestle with because there is clearly a doctrine of election. And though the church has wrestled with it's either foreknowledge or this sovereign choice of God, we're all elected by God to finish this journey with him, those who know him. So how do we, oh, how do we deal with this? All right, so I guess you're ready, but I got to continue to set this up just a little bit. I saw a bumper sticker not too long ago, and it said, God is my co-pilot. You ever seen this one? You may have that one. Sorry, but um, I'm thinking immediately, you're crashing at least half the time, okay? Um, that's, not, that's not a good way to live your life. God is your pilot. He's the one. Some of you, you may have heard this story. Um, I, I heard recently, and I love this. It, it's of a, of a man who lived out in a village and he had this prized possession was his horse. He only had one horse and it was his means of income. And, and the horse got away jumped out of the fence and, and ran off. All the villagers came around and said, oh, this is bad, bad news. The man said, eh, good or bad. And the horse came back like a week later, came back with seven stallions, wild horses. And he brought them into, into his fence and his pen. All the villagers gathered around and said, this is good, well, this is great news. The man said, eh, good or bad. And so then while they were trying to break these horses for domestic use, his son was on the horse. Horse bucked him off. He broke his leg. Everybody gathered around. Oh, this is bad news. He said, good or bad. Their country went to war, and they were drafting all the 18-year-olds, and they came, and his son had a broken leg. They couldn't draft him into the army. And all the villagers said, this is good. Good or bad. And so the story goes. We need to rethink what is good and what is bad and even trust God with those things that come our way because as that story goes, so goes life. God is at work in your life in ways you cannot see. Even in the darkest, most difficult moments, and that's the way this book goes. Romans 1, oh, this is really bad news. We, we're separated from God. Oh, but no, Romans 2, well, there's hope. There's righteousness. It, it, chapter 1, It's come. Oh, then Romans 3, oh no, for all who sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, that's bad news. Oh, but wait, there's hope because it's by faith that we're saying, oh, that's good news. And so now he comes all the way to chapter 9 and the question is, but wait, if he's not keeping his promise with the Jews, then does God keep his promises? And will he keep his promises to me? Has he jettisoned his plan? Does he not stay on course? And so we come to the sovereignty of God. And by the way, because I will not be able to unpack or answer all the issues around Calvinism and Arminianism and all that kind of thing. And again, we're going to live in the tension. We're going to live in the mystery. But this coming Wednesday night, we're having another doctrine and dessert where we will address this doctrine in particular. And I hope you'll come. It'll be in the, you'll see it in the bulletin there. And it'll be in the commons. So what does all this mean? First, it starts in chapter 9 and in verses 1 through 5. Um, Paul is saying, and I'll I'll buzz through this portion, but he says, uh, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says, verse two, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Now, what, what is his problem? Essentially, he's saying, my kinsmen, the Jews, I was a Pharisee, my brothers and sisters have missed the Messiah altogether. Most of them. And he even says, look at this compassion he has for the loss that we should have as well. He says, I wish, my, I, wish I was accursed. Now, this is, this is mind-blowing for me. I wish I was cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. If I could be and not them, then I would love that. And then he goes on to talk about all of the gifts that, that are the Israelites to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law and worship and the promises, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, from even their ethnicity, and and according to the flesh, out of them came Christ. That he was from that bloodline, if you will, of Abraham, who is God over all, Jesus Christ, blessed forever. He says, we've had all of this, and yet... We've missed it, and so the question is asked, well, how is God going to accomplish this? And if he's not, is he not true to his promise to Israel, to God's people? And Paul is going to answer this great question. So let's talk about the sovereignty of God. The first thing I want you to see is because this this doctrine can cause us to question God question is sovereignty. It brings about fear. Am I in or am I out? Who's in and who's out? First thing I want you to see is this. Surrender your fears. In Romans 9, 6 through 13, it says this. Romans 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. You see, he's answering the question. Is God, is his promise failed? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Wait, what? Paul's saying things aren't as they seem to be. You've misunderstood the promise altogether. Now, he's talked about this a little bit. Some of you may know the answer to this already. You've misunderstood that it's not simply if you have Abraham's DNA, then you're saved. You're okay. He's going to say, as he's been teaching us, there are spiritual children of God. Some of them are a part of Abraham's family but most of them are not because now the gospel is open to the gentiles and this is blowing everyone's mind there's a true israel and it's not simply those who are ethnic israelis if you will or jews god's promises are kept by his power watch this there's two things i want you to see about his The power of election or his choices. The question we often are wondering, is God really all powerful? Is he just, Paul's going to answer these questions. Look at what he says in verse seven. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, if you know anything about this story and you'll see that he's assuming we all understand Old Testament history and we don't. Uh, so he says, okay, it's not through Ishmael, okay, that was another son, right, uh, Hagar's son with Abraham, but through Isaac that the promise is going to come. In fact, Abraham had other sons. He's saying he had other sons, but simply because you have his DNA through those sons doesn't mean you're a part of the promise. It's through Isaac. And so now you could argue, oh, good, well, then I'm a part of that tribe or I'm, I'm a lineage of Isaac, so I'm good. He said, no, 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 no. Isaac represents the promise. Isaac represents a lineage of faith, not flesh. And so in verse eight, he says this. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, in order to go further with this, he he then explains, for this, verse nine, is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. He's saying there was a promise to come. These are the people of faith who believe God's promises. And ultimately, there's coming a Messiah from this promise to to Isaac. And then he goes on. If God is all powerful to accomplish his plans, okay, but is he all loving? These are the questions that we we ask. And, and, And I want you to see that God's promises are kept by his grace, not simply by his power, but because of his love anticipating a challenge, okay, you're with me, that Abraham had other sons other than Isaac. He goes further to to more specifically explain God's election by saying, okay, look at Isaac's sons. Isaac had a wife, Rebekah, and he says this, Rebekah had twins. So watch what he's doing here. Very logical argument. Okay, same father, same time, twins, same womb, Watch God's election in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God's the one who calls. They haven't done anything good or bad. There are no scales. They're not yet born. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What? Now if we close the word now and left, we are all wondering what in the world. Notice God's sovereign election. Neither had done anything right or wrong, and yet he chooses Jacob, not the elder, not Esau, but Jacob, who was a mess, if you know anything about Jacob. And so every elementary age kid, no, adult in the room says, that's not fair. And God says, hold on. Who's God? You or me? Who, who do you want running the show here? We said, but wait, see how much we want to bring something to the table? what do we bring? Isn't it on me? And so we have fears that, that, that lead us to, to a life of constant anxiety because we don't place our lives in, in control, in the control of God's loving hands. And, and his purpose is for us. And so we live our lives uh, thinking there, there is a scale. And we feel guilty. You know why we feel guilty? Because we are And so we live with this constant tension, this undercurrent of shame and guilt. We feel guilty and and what, what God is saying here. But I think Paul's trying to tell us is, listen, it's never been about you. It's never been about you. It's about a sovereign God who is at work in ways that you can't understand. The irony of the gospel is the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're not worthy of it, Right? I'm messing with your minds. No, the Holy Spirit is. But here's what, listen, here's how I rest at night. You can sleep well tonight as I do because I wor- here's what I say. I worship like a Calvinist. And you do too. I didn't save myself. God, you reached down and you saved me. You chose me. I don't understand it, but you chose me. I worship like a Calvinist, but I minister like an Arminian zealot. Like it's up to us. It's why we're going around the world to share the gospel. It's why this week we need to tell others about Jesus. We we serve him. we, We serve others. We love others. But look at this. I want you to see, you need to surrender your fears, and here's why. Because God keeps his promises, that's why. That's what Paul is saying. Surrender your fears to be good enough. Surrender your fears not measuring up. I say it all the time. It's based on what Christ has done, not on what we do. And so Paul is saying God has been faithful to fulfill his promise through Israel that will culminate through his church that I would argue is the true Israel. You're saved by grace through faith alone. That's how you enter into his family. So he may be loving, but here's the question, Paul's brilliant mind, but is he just? Because that's not fair. Secondly, I want you to see this. Surrender your sense of justice. This is hard. This is a hard teaching. This is the part of Romans that everybody struggles with. Because we're wondering, well, then is God just arbitrary? Is he randomly choosing people to save and others will perish? Do, does, does my free will not come into play at all? What about sharing the gospel? These are all the questions that arise. Paul anticipates our objections. And he doesn't try to qualify it or explain it. In fact, this will make you even more crazy. He doubles down on it. And so it says in Romans nine fourteen. what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see his brilliant mind tracking this whole thing? By no means, he says. God's not unjust. And then he explains why in a way that continues to confound our limited understanding. Look at this, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, this is the key point he's trying to make here. He's all about God and his mercy toward you and not your own works. And we should pause and praise God for that. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, watch this, he's going deeper into this argument. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show you, show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens, uh-oh, whomever he wills. What? Are you, are you tracking with me here? Is your mind blown yet? Are, are you a bit frustrated with this? Because in, in, in Exodus 7, verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. You remember that? Now, in Exodus eight fifteen, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Who's hardening whom? Does God know who will harden their hearts? And so he's going to use even that for his glory. This is how all-powerful he is. This is what he's saying. I'm going to use Pharaoh for my purposes. And and, and he's already going to have a hardened heart. In fact, he's hardened his heart. It'll be hardened further. In fact, we see this in Romans 1, where it says he gave them over. Those who would reject him, he says, okay, live as if there's no God. Let's see how that goes. And then Paul is arguing that even in their rebellion, we're seeing the glory of God because we're seeing how righteous and holy he is. And so, surrender here's the challenge surrender your sense of justice. Why? Because God is just. We have to trust that he's just. And to say that he's just, friends, listen, is this every decision he makes is right, he's just. Now, how does this come into play in our lives? Well, some of us, we need to celebrate the fact that others around us are receiving things we don't think they deserve. Comparison is a thief of joy. That coworker gets the promotion that you thought you should have had. Can you rejoice for them? Well, no, because you're God. You're in control of all things and that's not how you would have done it, right? Or how about this? When will you finally forgive that family member? Extend grace and love to that coworker or that neighbor or that person in your life. For many of us, our sense of justice is keeping us from being loving and kind and gracious and, and to be servants of others. Helmut who who is a German theologian, writing on forgiveness, he said this, I flee from the risks of grace and I run to the security of ungrace. I knew I should forgive, I wanted to forgive, I could not, I was too just. Our justice stands in the way of grace. But his justice, his kindness should lead us to repentance. And this is what Paul is trying to say, he's just. But look at this, finally, thirdly, this may be the hardest. Surrender your timetable. Paul's argument reaches now the high point because this hypothetical opponent has now played the what's the point then card. See his brilliant logic? This is where this goes. He's arguing for you and he's answering for you. And in verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? He's saying, What's the point? If God is in control of all things, and Paul leaves this free will, God's sovereignty tension unresolved, and we're going, no, don't leave it. You've got to keep reading to the book of Romans. You got to come back next week. That's what it is. But he simply said, here's what he's saying. Trust him. Trust him. Because you're not going to understand, actually. Look at, look at verses 20 and 21. He, he, he draws an analogy from the Old Testament, primarily from Jeremiah 18. He says, but, but who are you, O man? He uses that language designating who we are, the created ones, to answer back to God. Will what is molded, the clay, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The potter is the one who decides what the clay will become. Not you. Not me. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before hand for glory. What? He's saying God's ways are not like our ways. And and, and his timetable is not like ours. But look, the key word here, he's endured with patience. Patience that those who do not and have not yet returned to him will return. And patience regarding his wrath upon those who have not turned to him. And so even in their rebellion and further disobedience... They are still bringing glory to God because of the contrast of their rebellious life up against his holiness. And we, I I was in a conversation this week with a man who said, Jeff, life is just not fair. And when we think of this, we start to question the goodness of God and we cease to trust him. But here's my challenge to you. Surrender your timetable because God is patient. God is patient with you. But here's where I want to land. Listen, his patience does not equal his approval. Now you tell me, 2 Peter 3, 9 says this. Seems to contradict Romans 9. Because there are passages throughout the the Old and New Testament that challenge the Calvinist position or the Arminian position. 2 Corinthians 3, 9 says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you. Now that would agree with Romans 9. But then he says, not wishing that anyone should perish. The Lord is patient, but that all should come to repentance, it says. And that word pas in the Greek, all, means all. So God is on a different timetable. He will not be patient forever, however. His kindness should lead us to repentance, is what Paul is saying. So let me challenge you as we close. When are you going to finally commit your life to the Lord. And I know we're on varying degrees. That's why you're here today. When are you going to finally love that difficult person in your life? Life is too short. When are you going to share Christ with that person that, that may not know him? When? What are you waiting on? And for some of you, when are you going to join the fellowship of this church? When are you going to proclaim, as Luke did earlier, your profession of faith in Christ to the world through baptism? What are you waiting on? People say, you know, well, you know, I'm I'm waiting on God to move in this area of my life. I'm just waiting on the Lord. No, He's waiting on you. In what area of your life, let's be honest, is He waiting on you? He goes on to finish this teaching. By saying God is calling forth the people, verses 25 through 26, who were not his people. And he's doing that now. And and there's a remnant that's going to come. And then he summarizes it with his summarizing question. What shall we say then? He keeps asking throughout. What's the bottom line? Why have the Jews or religious zealots of any kind not achieved righteousness? And here's his summary statement, verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And we are stumbling through the truths of this passage because God is bigger than you ever thought he was. So all we can do, friends, is give him control of our lives. Surrender to him. God keeps his promises He is just, his timetable is perfect, he is patient, but his kindness is to lead us to repentance and to worship a God that we cannot put in our box of understanding. Praise be to God, he is God, and we are not. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this amazing passage of scripture We thank you for all of the Bible as we interpret scripture with scripture. This one challenges our logic, challenges our pride. It challenges our sense of control. So Lord, I I thank you that you've reminded me this week, this morning, that I'm not in control of my life. And that's a good thing. So all I'm left to do with all my questions is to surrender. Surrender. So, friend, right where you are right now, would you surrender your life to the Lord? Look back on your life and things that have happened that you thought were because of others in your life. God is sovereign. Even in those challenging times, he has been working for your good and for his glory. So today, again, I ask you, what are you waiting for? Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to give your life over to him. Determine now to do those things that you know God is calling you to do. He's waiting on you, but he will not wait forever. Today is the day. Lord, we give you our lives because you are God. We worship you with our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.